Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Follow Me, we will be looking at what it means to be a disciple. Today's speaker is Senior Minister Dee Dee Bacon. Well, uh, some time ago, and it's been pretty much more than a year, I really can't remember when I started this, but some time ago I made the decision that I was going to read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And you're like, well, big deal, Didi. You're supposed to do that. You're a preacher dude and all that. Um, but the difference here was as I decided I was going to read the Bible at a pace that would um, go where I would be listening and searching for God to speak to me more than trying to get it done. Now, those of you who know me, have known me for some years, know that I'm a kind of a, a get-it-done kind of guy, D to the speedy. If I'm going to do something, I go from point A to point B, and I want to get there as quickly as possible. I mean, what's this in between? My kids know this really well. Uh, when we do family vacations, they knew that they better empty bladders to the fullest before we leave, because Dad doesn't like to stop. You know, and we'd be driving along and say, uh, Dad, I think I might need to go to the bathroom. I'll be like, well, can you hold it? Because we need to get through the city. And we get through the city, and I'm like, uh, Dad, we went through the city. Can we stop soon? Uh, no, I think we've got to get out of this traffic. Uh, it's crazy. And so I would push it and push it because I hate to stop until the point where I could hear the desperation in their voice and the fear in their eyes, and they would look at, Dad, we need to stop. And I'm like, all right. And we pull over and we stop and, and go on because I just got to get from point A to point B. That's just how I'm wired. Well, the trouble with that is, is that when you travel that way, when you're always orientated towards getting to the end of the task, you fail to appreciate what's in between. And in a journey, you fail to appreciate the sights, the sounds, the experience. Um, you know, there are other people in my life that like to wander and visit and do all sorts of things, and they are a discipline unto me because I have to be patient with that, and uh, Shannon, um, and... Uh, <laughs> Because I want to get point A to point B. Now, I was approaching reading my Bible that way. I noticed that I was reading just to get it done. I was reading to get the charge of marking it off my spiritual to-do list. you ever be like that? Like, yeah, I read the Bible. What'd you read? I don't know, but I read the Bible, right? <laughs> so I made this commitment to read slowly, and it's just been enriching and uh, forcing myself to reread, forcing myself to pause, forcing myself to think, okay, what, what's happening here? What's God saying? Is there something for me to take away? Uh, when I didn't get anything, I would just stop and just kind of listen. I'm now at the uh, book of Micah. Micah is one of the prophets. And uh, when you read Micah, the first three chapters, what you come to realize is that Micah is the classic hellfire and brimstone preacher. And he's preaching a message to uh, the split kingdom of Israel. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, church, uh, ancient history here. But uh, he was preaching a message to both of those groups, and he was telling them, uh, God is going to bring judgment on you because you've turned away from him and you've turned to the worship of idols. And so the first three chapters of Micah is all, you're going to get it, bringing it down, you know, think Baptist preacher in a suit sweating and, you know, roaring at him. And, and <laughs> thanks, Tim. <laughs> Tim's my laugh track. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
So uh, chapter 3, 1, 2, 3 is all, all, all judgment and, and condemnation and, and the impending doom that's going to come. And you get this term, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and, and it's, it's there and it's a warning. And then you shift to chapter 4 and all of a sudden the tone changes and what you get is a, a, an expression or a communication of the heart of God saying, you know, judgment's coming, but my heart, my desire is restoration. My heart, my desire is to bring about peace between us. My heart, my desire is a time in which all people, not just, just the Jews, the, the people of God, but all people can come to me and they, we, can, we can be in harmony, we can be in peace, and, and we can be in a place where I can be known by you and you can know me. And so he paints this picture and, and there's this vision there, uh, Micah chapter 4, verse 2 Micah chapter 4, verse 2, uh, it says this. It says, Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. So let us go to where God dwells. Let us go to the place where God, God has put his abode. That he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion, Zion is a word for the dwelling place of God. From Zion will go forth the law, the communications of God, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God's desire is that there will be a day when people from all over, not just Jews, not just the people of God, all over the world will come and they will be able to know him. And, and he will be able to teach them his ways, and they may walk in his path. It's a beautiful picture. And the exciting thing is, is that what we read about there, here's the good news. What we read about there, it's happening now. These are these, those times. Because Jesus provided a way by which all people from all tribes and languages and creeds can be made right with God through faith, and we can experience that which was vision, envisioned by the prophet Micah through Christ and the ministry of the church. Now, how do we get to that place? How do we get to the place where, where God is in our life and he teaches us about his ways and, and, and we walk in his path. How do we get there? Well, we get there by simply responding to invitation. And the invitation is, follow me. The invitation by Jesus, follow me. See, Jesus is seeking those who would share life with him. Follow me. Now, it's interesting to note, if you read through the Bible, the New Testament part, that's the, the first four books of the, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is called, they're called the Gospels, and they're basically uh, eyewitness accounts with the desire to persuade those they're communicating to, to persuade them to follow Jesus. And each have their own unique flavor and each have their own unique uh, audience. But basically, the idea is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about the teachings and doings of Jesus. And if you read through these gospel accounts, what you notice is that early on when Jesus began his ministry, 30 years old, he began his ministry, and he began preaching and teaching and doing the miracles that he started to do, calling together his followers, his disciples, started to what he called the establishing the kingdom of God. When he did that, he attracted huge crowds. 
people came to see him. Why? Well, he was doing amazing things. He was doing miracles. And he was teaching some amazing things. And in fact, his teaching was was radical. It was in the face of the, the, the current religious establishment. And there was this fervor that surrounded Jesus because the people at that time were under bondage, under oppression from the Romans, and, and they were looking for freedom. And so there was this nationalistic fervor, and everyone was looking for the Messiah. And, and all of a sudden, the buzz was that this miracle worker, this, this, this man, Jesus, could be who we've been waiting for. And so he attracted the crowds to come around him because everyone wanted to see him. Everyone wanted a piece of him. But what we notice is that every time there's an, a, 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 a crowd that gathers around, Jesus is not interested in the crowd. Let's turn to, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Read you an account, something I'm talking about. He says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Now, I'm going to take some time to unpack that, but the first thing I want, I want you to notice this is that first and foremost, right there, right in the beginning, we recognize that Jesus is not interested in the crowd. Uh, The way I put it for your bulletin is that Jesus is not interested in spectators. Jesus is not interested in spectators. The crowd were spectators. I'm going to write this out, the word spectator. What is a spectator? Oops, I, I just love these big markers. Aren't they awesome? They're like lightsaber markers. Anyway, okay, excuse me. Spectators. Now, the word spectator, what do they mean? What is a spectator? Well, um, obviously we know this front part of the word, spec, is to see, right? And a spectator is someone who is orientated towards observation to seeing. Now, Tim Proud, our facilities manager, noticed this. He said the second part of the word is tater, (laughs) as in couch potato. So a spectator is a couch potato that likes to watch. He's pretty clever, isn't he? Okay. Um, But I think we get the idea of what a spectator is. A spectator is someone who observes. Observes what? Observes an entertainer, usually. So we think of spectator. We go to a sport event. We sit in the seats, and we cheer on our team. And what do we do? We observe the game being played. And if it's the Bengals, we cry. And if it's someone else, we celebrate, right? Um, a spectator is, in, a, in terms of going to a show, what do we do? We sit and we watch. We observe. And the way that works is that when we're a spectator, what we're doing is we are observing. And if they're really good at entertaining, we get enamored with the story. We get enamored of what they're, they're, they're communicating. But there's always a separation. Spectators really never get close to the entertainer. Why? Because there's this transactional agreement. The spectator is the customer. The entertainer is the provider of a service, right? There's this transactional agreement that keeps a separation. 
Well, you see right from the beginning of Scripture, it says, when Jesus noticed the crowd, what did he do? He gets in a boat and he wants to move away. He recognizes that his ministry is not about getting the crowds per se. No, his ministry is about getting followers. Followers. Or we use the New Testament word, disciples. It's not that Jesus is not interested in crowds and numbers. No, what he wants is more than spectators. He wants followers. Now, it's interesting to know to ask, okay, what's the difference between a spectator and a follower? Well, I'm reading a book that really kind of helped me understand this. He said, you know, when we're a spectator or when we're in the seats in the crowds, uh, it has to do with the knowledge of the person we're observing. Spectators, their knowledge is, is typically objective. Objective knowledge. I know, my writing's terrible. Right? But a follower has a different kind of knowledge. A follower has what's called experiential knowledge. I want to give you a couple of examples of what I mean. Um, personal examples. One's easy and one's personal. <laughs> All right. Just recently, um, Shannon and I bought a new car. A friend of ours put us in uh, contact. We bought a sweet 2008 Honda Accord, 75,000 miles. It was a deal. So for us, Bacons, it's like yippee yippee because we haven't had cars, in, you know, very many cars that were made in the new millennium. Uh, just is how we roll, right? So we, we were like, now, when I found out about this car, what did I do? Well, it started with objective knowledge. I started researching the car. I got the car facts. I asked questions like how many owners, uh, new tires, how's the engine, I did the research, right? I found out, okay, good customer reviews, bad customer reviews. I observed all of that, and I, and I talked then uh, price. And, and then I, I did a little bit of uh, looking personally, right? Went and looked at the car, opened the door, checked the, like, ooh, I like the color. I like the bodywork. No rust. Oh, the, the tires are new. Oh, the new brakes. Uh, uh, everything looks good on the engine. I was gathering what's called objective knowledge. Now, that objective knowledge had to move somewhere. And that, what it did was once I was confident about what I was receiving, all the information I was taking, then Shannon and I made the commitment. We made a commitment. We signed the papers. And then how many of you ever, do you, how many experience buyer's remorse? When you make a big purchase, after you sign the papers, you're like, oh, how much did we pay? Anyway, uh, we went through all of that. We made a commitment on our objective knowledge. And then the car was ours. And we drove it home, and we started to fall in love. I love how it drives. I love how it feels. I love how it smells. I love pushing the buttons. I love that I can plug in now my phone. I didn't used to be able to plug in my, my phone and listen to our music. That objective knowledge moved to a commitment, then moved to experiential knowledge. I love the car. When I go to Walmart, I don't park in the regular parking place. I park all the way down because I don't want those yahoos banging up my paint, right? <laughs> my old car, the dog, he just throw the dog in the back. He threw up, hair everywhere. I didn't care. My new car, I told Shannon, no, dog's not in loud. And if he's in there, he's going to have a blanket in the back. I, I love my dog, but right now, no in the car. 
You see where the difference was? A move from objective knowledge to experiential knowledge. Well, the difference between a spectator, the one in the crowd, to a follower is making the transition from being an observer, one who observes and learns about Jesus, to one who knows of Jesus, first-hand experience life. All right, let me get to a, a more relatable example. So uh, I, I was a foreign student. I came to Cincinnati Bible College and uh, in 1988, I had a class called hermeneutics. I was sitting in the back, which is what I did. I was a kid that sat in the back and answered all the questions, smart aleck. Um, I was sitting in the back. It was Tom Fristing's class. And all of a sudden, this, this girl walked in, and she was one that sat in the front because she was a goody two-shoes. Um, she sat out in front. And I was like, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I landed in front of my, my chair, and I was trying to look at her. Um, and so I, I saw her, and I tried to figure out who this girl is. And so I did what most of the guys do when you're interested in a girl. I started researching. We had what was affectionately known as the hit list. It was a student directory, uh, the hit list for, for the girls. And so I found out, ah, oh, her name's Shannon Morris. And she lives on such and such, and this is her number and extension. And then what did I do? I went and started talking to my pals. Hey, what do you know about the Shannon Morris? I mean, yeah, yeah. And I started collecting objective information, right? And then what? Well, then I had to pluck her up the courage to talk to her. I, I knew the information. I knew she wasn't dating anyone, so she was available. Uh, and I didn't have to work up an assassination plan for the guy she was dating. Um, <laughs> I'm from Africa. That's what we do. Uh, <laughs> and then I started talking to her, right? She didn't understand what I was saying because I had a funny accent and I was wearing two-tone jeans and all that kind of weird stuff. But anyway, we started conversing and then we started being friends and then we started hanging out together and then we started going out in groups and, and, and being together and, and, and then we started going in this conversation. The next thing I know, I ask her out for a date. Are you, are you with me? I'm moving from objective knowledge to experiential knowledge. We start connecting and doing life together and we start dating and as we start dating, things get more serious and we have an argument and ups and downs and we work through those arguments and, and, and then we come to the point where we take it even deeper. I ask her to be my wife and she says yes and then we work through that and it's still growing, growing, doing life together to eventually we get married and then we take it to a whole new level where we live life together and we love each other as husband and wife and we move from, from objective knowledge. I, I knew about her, now I know of her as my wife. Jesus wants us to move to, from objective knowledge, from being a spectator to being a follower. And so Jesus wants followers who are committed to do life with him. That's what he's after. Remember the vision in Micah? I will teach them my ways and I'll teach them that my paths. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And so the invitation to follow me is move from being an observer about Jesus to now being a person who does life with Jesus. Problem is, is that we throw up barriers to that. And those barriers are exemplified by the two conversations that Jesus has with two individuals in the text that I read in, in Matthew chapter 8. 
I would say these are categories of uh, themes that exemplify excuses or barriers that we put up that limit us from being able to make the jump from spectator to follower. The first one is a religious guy, a scribe. Jesus says, I'm about to leave, leave the crowd. And a guy runs up, you get this idea, he goes, ho, ho, where are you going? I'll follow you wherever you go. And we figure out what he means by Jesus' response. Jesus says, uh, the Son of Man has no place to live, basically. If you follow me, you're not going to have a place to reside. And I think this man exemplifies those of us that feel like we are only going to follow Jesus as long as there's a guarantee of unicorns and rainbows, a guarantee of safety, a guarantee of security. And this is what dismays me with some of the the preachers that that are out there that preach what we call health and wealth. They say, if you follow God and do everything the right way in the right house, then everything will be good. You'll be safe. You'll be secure. You have a full bank account. You'll have no, no illness. You'll be able to have a house that you've always dreamed of because that's God's plan for your life. Well, that is not what Scripture teaches. Some have said that the safest place in the world is in the middle of God's will. Well, the truth is that is true, but the other side of the fact is also true. It's also the most dangerous place in the world. And Jesus said, if you want to follow me, and we'll talk about this later, is that you've got to take up a cross. Well, a cross is a symbol of execution. Jesus said, if you follow me, then you're going to face trouble. And so Jesus says, follow me, not as, a, not as a, a guarantee to be free from trial and difficulty and suffering, not that we won't get sick and, and our loved ones won't die and our, our relationships won't fall apart and we won't struggle financially. No, he says, follow me and I'll never leave you or forsake you. Follow me and I will be with you in those walks of life. Follow me and you'll begin to experience what it is to know me intimately in the ups and downs and you'll be able to see that there are times that I will calm the storm. That's why we have the praises. And then there are times when I will just strengthen the sailor. Now, the other guy exemplifies um, what I call those who uh, say yes, and then they always add but. Yes, buts. <laughs> Whoops. Yes, buts. Um, he, you got this guy who says, I, I will follow you. But first, let me go and bury my dad. And you're like, well, that's, that's pretty responsible for him. That's appropriate. And I think that's a great example that even though many times we, we want to follow Jesus, we come up with legitimate excuses that modify our commitment. A lot of times we come up with excuses that restrict our or limit our commitment to Christ because we want to fit that commitment into our own agenda, our own timetable, our own whatever. But Jesus said, no, when you follow me, it's all in. It's all in. You can't negotiate the terms in order to fit your own uh, whatever you're doing. No, it's all in, and we walk life together. Follow me, and it sounds kind of harsh, just let the dead bury the dead. What he means is, hey, you follow me all in. doesn't mean that you can't bury your dead, but don't try to follow Jesus by your own terms and by your own agendas. And that's what we do many times. In fact, that's the struggle point I know in my own life. And in fact, I will tell you there are times when being a Jesus follower is pretty inconvenient and pretty hard. 
Another personal example. I'm a competitive kind of guy. I like to win. I like to be first. I like to have the best, and I like to get it done. It's how God wired me. On the one hand, it's a good thing. It's who I am and it's why I've been able to do what I do. But on the other hand, when that's out of control, it's a bad thing because it may cause me to run over people, people that I say I love for the sake of winning. Enter in, follow me. Enter in this call to put aside my own agendas, my own wants. Enter in this uh, communication from God that says, if uh, you want to be a husband like Jesus, you have to be willing to die for your wife. You have to be willing to sacrifice self in order to bless her. You don't have to do the hard things sometimes and lead as a servant. So I have an argument with my wife. We're going back and forth, and she's probably right, as she always is. Uh, just ask her. And, um, and my competitive nature says, I'm going to win. And I'm good at arguing, and I'm good at, I, I can pull out the stops, and I will persuade and persuade and wear her down and win. But if I'm called to follow Jesus, then I have to put aside that, that part of me, that competitiveness, and put it aside and say, no, I'm called to listen, to value, to appreciate to servant lead, follow me. I'm reading a book right now that um, I found really helpful. It's called uh, The Gift of Being Yourself, The Sacred Call to Self-Discovery. It's by a man named David G. Benner. Um, page 35, he has this quote that really strikes at the heart of what I'm talking about. He says, Knowing God also requires surrender. Knowing God also requires surrender. Thomas Merton writes that we must know the truth, we must love the truth, we know, and we must act according to the measure of our love. Truth is God himself who cannot be known apart from love and cannot be loved apart from surrender to his will. Genuine knowing demands a response. To know God demands that we'll be willing to be touched by divine love. To be touched by God's love is to be forever changed. To surrender to divine love is to find our soul's home, the place and identity for which we yearn in every cell of our being. If you read the Bible, you realize that it's a love story. In the beginning, you have this picture of God and man walking and fellowshipping together in the garden. In order for that to work, God provides a gift. The gift is choice because you can't have uh, love without the ability uh, to choose. And so in that, man is tempted, and we know the story, and rebels and buys into the lie from the evil one that says you can be like God apart from God. That's really what it is. And so then you have this laying out of the story. And, and at the beginning, God says something interesting. He says, I have a response, a plan to execute regarding how this mess is going to be corrected. And in the story, you find that God's plan is first that from these first people, he, first individuals, he forms a nation, right? You got all these guys, uh, Abraham and 
Jacob and all his kids, 12 sons, and they become a nation, a tribe, all that. And then you've got Moses, who's the lawgiver, and then you've got David. And the whole story of the Bible and the first part of your Bible is called the Old Testament. And that story is really God speaking to a people and saying, this is what it is required for you to walk in my paths, to live in my ways. We call that the law. This is what it means. And at the end of that story, what we discover is that the truth is, is that though we may know what the ways of God are, none of us, whether we are a Jew or an Israelite who received direct communication from our God or a non-Jew, none of us are able to do it on our own. In other words, the way of the law is blocked because of our rebellion, because of our inability to keep the law perfectly. But God's plan was always not to rely on the way of law. No, his way was to make this communication known so that from the people of God, he raises up a person of God who is his son, Jesus, who provides a new way to be right with God, a way that's apart from, the Bible says, the law, the law way. Now it's called the grace way. And the grace way is made open because Jesus, uh, the perfect human being, God in flesh, laid down his life to pay the price that was due for those of us who were stuck on the law way to be made right. And the avenue by which we can, can, can get on that, the way we get on it is, is faith, belief. And belief can, is something that anyone can do for whoever you are, whether male, female, Jew, non-Jew, uh, whoever you are, no matter what you've done, if you respond to, to the invitation, follow me by faith, you can be made right with God. And the vision that Micah had of being able to walk with God and know his ways can be achieved, can be accomplished. We can be made right with God through faith. And what we teach here at Mount Carmel, by grace, through faith, at baptism, baptism, the occasion by which we can, can say, now we've moved from a, a different status and celebrate the truth of, of our response by faith. And then what? Then we walk with God. God does not save us and clean us and dump us. God saves us, cleans us, and employs us, and that means following him, moving from spectator to follower. The question is, is where are you? Maybe you are one of the excuse makers. Maybe you're wanting a guarantee of safety. You're afraid, and you want to make sure that God's going to deliver all the goods, and they're all good. Or maybe you are like the other guy who wants to negotiate the terms to fit in what you want because that's what you want. Well, you can't do that. Follow me. Jesus says, follow me. Where are you? Spectator or follower? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the challenge your word provides. And I just pray that uh, you speak to us. We're, uh, we're together. And... Uh, we struggle with this. It's a journey. I thank you that you move us and you're patient with us in this walk of grace, but ultimately it comes down to making a commitment, a, a, a saying yes, a response in faith to follow. I pray that you speak to us at this time. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.